my joy and uh, privilege to be with you all tonight, so thank you for uh, the invitation. Um, if you uh, would open in your Bible to the book of Jude. I'd like to read verses 24 and 25. Jude writes, To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages and now and forevermore. Amen. Wouldn't it be great to see God? Wouldn't it be wonderful to be in God's presence? Uh, For centuries of Western thought and for centuries of Christian theology, this was the sort of highest goal that anyone could aspire towards. So all of Dante's famous divine comedy moves towards a final vision of God in his beauty and his love. So after, if you're familiar with it, after traveling through the horrors of the the inferno and then purgatory, Dante finally beholds God. He calls this vision the the love that moves the sun and the other stars. T.S. Eliot called Dante's words the highest point that poetry has ever reached or ever can reach. I'm certainly in no position to argue with him. I think Dante was on to something. There, there is a deep longing in the human heart to be in the presence of God and to, to behold his perfection. That makes sense. According to the Bible, Adam and Eve, the first humans, were created to live in that sort of immediate face-to-face relationship with their creator. And so David prayed in the Psalms, uh, Psalm seventeen fifteen. As for me... I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And even the Lord Jesus promised this as the great reward uh, awaiting his people. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. But there's another side to the story. Because there are times recorded for us in Scripture where people do come into something of the presence of God. They get some glimpse of God and His glory. And it's interesting how they react. In the days of Moses, God met with His people at Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19, the Lord descends on the mountain with fire, warning the people not to come near lest they die. And after the mountain is consumed with smoke and thunder, and the blast of the trumpet, the people, they they don't say, Moses, can we come too? They they beg Moses to go speak to God on their behalf. They want no parts of the presence of the Lord. And in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet had a vision of the Lord in the temple, surrounded by angels, praising him for his holiness. And Isaiah's response wasn't like Dante's. Instead, we read in Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Ezekiel chapter 1 records a vision that the prophet had of God's glory, and he summarizes at the end of the chapter, Such was the appearance 
of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Isn't that interesting? Just the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord was enough to knock the prophet flat on his face. And in Luke chapter 5, last example, Jesus performs a miracle where he loads his disciples' nets with fish. If you remember, they'd been fishing all night. They'd caught nothing. They came back and Jesus said, go out and cast your nets again. And they come back with the boat loaded down. And you'd think they'd be grateful and happy, but, but Peter responds in Luke 5, 8. It says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. In each of these cases, the holiness of God makes sinful people unable to bear his presence. And so you have this tension between the idea that the most wonderful thing that could possibly happen, the the best thing you could ever hope for, would be to be in the presence of God in his beauty. And on the other hand, this idea that being in God's presence is unbearable for sinful people. Well, our passage for this evening from the book of Jude, I think, is going to begin to tell us how this tension becomes resolved. And at the risk of spoiling the ending, the solution is found in God himself. If you remember, the little letter to Jude is written to a church that's been uh, infiltrated by false teachers. Uh, According to Jude, these certain people have crept in unnoticed And they were teaching that God's grace and forgiveness, it seems they were teaching that it meant that God's grace meant you could live any way that you wanted to. They were promoting license and immorality in the church. And so at the beginning of the letter, Jude wants the believers to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints there in verse 3. They were to labor diligently to make sure that they held tight to the good news about Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the things Liam was saying, are pictured for us in baptism. Jude has warned his readers about the judgment that God will uh, levy against sin and rebellion. Uh, So in previous verses to the ones we're considering tonight, uh, Jude urges the recipients of his letter to keep themselves in the love of God. And so here at the conclusion of Jude's letter, we see uh, that Jude is going to tell us something about God himself. You see there in verse 25, He's he's talking about God. He calls him God, our Savior. Uh, And what he tells us about God is very important at the very beginning of the passage. He calls God the one who is able. He says, to him who is able. So there's something, perhaps, that Jude's readers, his audience, were nervous about. Maybe they were worried that God wasn't able or, or wasn't willing to do for them. And Jude wants them to know that, in fact... They shouldn't worry because God is, in fact, able. And so what is God able to do? Well, we see two things. First, he's able to keep them from stumbling. Uh, Keep them from falling is the, the translation we have here. To him who is able to keep you from falling. You see, Jude has described these false teachers in the church as potentially lethal threats to the spiritual well-being of the church members. Uh, In verse 12, he calls them hidden reefs at their love fests. Uh, They are, in verse 4, they're uh, designed for condemnation. And they threaten to lead others along with them. Uh, They bring up the memory of famous spiritual disasters. So in verse 11, he compares them to Cain and Balaam and Korah. 
Uh, In verse 7, he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so there's a danger here. The Christian life is often conceived of and described in the scriptures as as a journey with a fixed destination. So the Apostle Paul can talk about running his race. Uh, We're on a journey that ends either at our death or when the Lord Jesus returns. And the goal here is to get across the finish line. The goal is for us to so live our lives that we complete our course, that that we make it across the goal faithfully and receive the reward from our gracious God. We want to finish our lives walking with God and and living and following Jesus. But Scripture talks clearly about the fact that not everyone who starts well ultimately makes it. So the Apostle Paul talks about those who shipwreck their faith. In 1 John, the Apostle speaks of those who went out from us because they were showing that they weren't really Christians. Hebrews 10 talks about those who shrink back and are destroyed. And so Jude has been writing his letter to help prevent his readers and us from getting tripped up, to to urge them and to urge us to to not shipwreck our faith, not to be caught up uh, in the errors of these false teachers, not to find ourselves under the judgment of God like Balaam and Cain and the sons of Korah. Jude tells us to contend for the faith because that's the only place salvation can be found. He's told us even to keep ourselves in the love of God because this perseverance requires effort from us but now in our verses for this evening he gives us another angle on this truth if, you were, if it's a diamond he turns it a little bit so that we can see yet another facet of this truth that God is able to keep us from stumbling as we walk along our path now if you understand what Jude's saying here it should feel like oxygen in the room Because if you know yourself very well, if you know uh, at all about your own nature and your own strength, you know that if it only depends on you, if it only depends on your effort and your self-control and your will to keep yourself in the faith, if that's all that you have, brothers and sisters, you're not going to make it. But in fact, Jude tells us here, our Heavenly Father, the only God, our Savior, is able to keep us from stumbling. He is able to protect us and keep us. This is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 10 when he says to his disciples in verse 29, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see, Jesus has the same thinking there that Jude has. What we need to know is that God does not lack the power. Jesus says that he's greater than all. Jude says he's able. God does not lack the power and he does not lack the motivation to keep us in his love, to keep us from stumbling. That leads us naturally to the second thing that Jude says that God is able to do. He's able to present us before the presence of his glory. So to him who's able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence. That's it. That's the prize at the finish line. Uh, Paul describes an imperishable victory wreath given to faithful runners. Uh, Jesus, again, talks about this vision of God that the pure of heart receive. It's all wrapped up in this idea of being presented before the, the presence, the glorious presence of our God. You see, in God's presence, there is no sickness, no sorrow, no sin. 
In God's presence, all is made right and holy. In God's presence, every longing that can't be satisfied here on earth will be met and filled with the goodness and the glory of God. Christian, to be in the presence of God's glory is to have all of life's trials and temptations and tears wiped away. Think about, for a moment, think about the most wonderful, awe-inspiring, breathtaking sight you've ever seen. Maybe it's in the highlands. Maybe it's the Grand Canyon. Maybe somewhere you've traveled and you've seen something that that just uh, left you breathless, that just overwhelmed you with awe. Or think about the most beautiful piece of art you've ever seen, something that just overwhelmed you with the power of its beauty. Or or the, the most powerful music you've ever heard, or even the most exciting sporting event you've ever seen, if that's your cup of tea. Think about how those things take you to a place beyond yourself, and they, they make you aware of the reality of something far greater, far more awesome than you are. Now realize that those things are only a tiny, derivative splinter of the beauty and the power and the glory of the one who created them. Friends, standing in the presence of God's glory will be far more than even the most skillful poet could ever describe, far more than the best musician could ever point to, the best artist could ever capture. No wonder Jude says that we'll be standing there with great joy. God is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us before his glorious presence with great joy. To be in the presence of God's glory is to be overwhelmed by his goodness and beauty. But there's a problem. How can we stand before God's presence with great joy? As we saw earlier, when sinful people stand in anything like the presence of God, they, they become disintegrated, right? They, they, they become undone. The experience of the Israelites at Sinai, the experience of Isaiah, of Ezekiel, of Peter, that was not an experience of great joy. It, it, was, it was terror. So how can Jude tell us that God is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us before his glorious presence with great joy? How can sinners stand before God in great joy? Well, Jude tells us right there. He's able to present us before his glorious presence, what does it say? Without fault. That is to say, God is able to keep us from stumbling and to so cleanse us from sin that we can stand before him on that final day without any fault whatsoever. Friends, we can only imagine what it would be like to be morally pure, utterly blameless, perfectly and completely righteous. This is one of the things, if you're a Christian, you desire most in all the world. Uh, we, We long to be rid of sin and guilt. Our society has constructed all different kinds of ways of dealing with our sense of guilt. Right? I I don't know about Scotland, but in America, we've just redefined right and wrong. Right? Instead of feeling guilty, we just say, no, actually, that's right. That's good now. We've just tried as much as possible to set ourselves adrift from any kind of moral standards. In fact, the only thing you can't do nowadays, in America at least, is assert that there's some kind of objective standard of right and wrong. That's the only thing that's really wrong. But it turns out that doesn't work. 
Who would have thought? There is something of the image of God in all of us. There is a conscience that testifies against us. And though, though we can claim that we don't believe in right and wrong, our conscience won't allow us to live guilt-free. And so we all walk around with a sense of guilt for the things we've done, for the things we haven't done, for the ways we've failed the people around us, for the ways, if we're honest, we've fallen short of even our own standards, let alone God's. But friends, that's not what it will be like for us in God's presence. There will be no weight of guilt. There will be no shame at all of our inadequacies, our failures, our weakness, our sin. No fear of being exposed for who we really are. Why? Because God is able to present you blameless before his glorious presence. On that day, brothers and sisters, you will be before the Almighty One, the one that made Isaiah and Peter utterly freak out. And you will have great joy. Not because God has lowered his standards and it's now safe for sinful people to be near him, but because you and I will finally be made holy. This is the great benefit of Christ's work for us. God is able to present us blameless before his presence because of what the Lord Jesus has done. See, God doesn't just wave a magic wand and make our sin go away. But instead, he has paid the price to have it removed from us. God sent his son to take on human flesh. And the Lord Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God. The life that you and I should have lived. Jesus was the only perfectly righteous human being. But in love, he gave up his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin for us on the cross. Now in him, we are the righteousness of God. In Jude's word, we, we are presented blameless before him. That's why Jude says there in verse 25 that all of this is through Jesus Christ our Lord. How can we be presented blameless? How is God able to do that? Through the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what do we have to do in order to make this happen? How do we get this righteousness then? Well, it turns out we don't do anything. There's no religious checklist, but this righteousness comes to us as a gift Christianity doesn't come to you with a list of do's and don'ts. It doesn't come to you with a list of things you need to do in order to be right with God. That's religion. And it turns out that God hates it. So don't bother wasting your time with it. All of your best deeds, all of your most devoted acts of religious piety have no power to wash away your sin. You're just washing your hands with mud. It's not going to work. No, the good news is that this righteousness requires of you exactly what you have, which is to say, nothing. Jesus wants to give you this righteousness as a gift. If you'll repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ, you will be forgiven. You'll be cleansed and made blameless. Friend, if you're here this evening, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you must turn from your sins and put your trust in him. There will be a day when you will stand before this holy God. The God that made Peter and Isaiah and Ezekiel. All men, I'm betting, have, that with a better 
religious resume than you or I have. And God made them come unglued. And on that day, you will not be able to plead any acts of religious devotion, no good intentions, nothing that you've done to fix your sin problem. And for those of us who are Christians, who've received this righteousness as a gift, can you see for a moment how marvelous our salvation is? God is able, through Christ, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence. Christian, you'll be there, not weighed down with shame and guilt, not with regret and sorrow, but with great joy. And that leads us to Jude's application of this little theology lesson. What should we do in light of God's ability to keep us from stumbling and to present us before his glorious presence with great joy? Well, again, the answer is marvelously nothing. There, there are no imperatives here. There are no, therefore, go out and do this. Instead, we just have Jude's example. What does Jude do? He praises God. Jude ends his letter with a word of doxology, an expression of praise. This is the, this is the final application of every bit of theology. Everything we learn about God uh, should ultimately result in doxology, in praise. Praise to the only God for who he is and for what he's able to do and what he's done for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at the words that Jude uses here. He, he says, to him be glory, majesty, verse 25, power and authority. So glory, that is honor and praise, majesty, God's greatness over everything. A dominion or, or power, the, the arena in which God's reign is expressed. It's limitless. Authority, uh, God rules over all that he's made. To be clear, Jude isn't suggesting that we give these things to God. He already has them. He's not in any way dependent on us to, to make him glorious or majestic or powerful or, or authoritative. No, instead, Jude's showing us and inviting us to bring our hearts, our affections, our desires, our love in line with the glorious reality of who God is. We are invited to respond to the truth of God's character and salvation. And so the natural, normal, proper response to God's character and salvation is praise. Whatever it is you're looking at in Scripture, whether it's God's justice, His mercy, His wrath, His patience, in the end, it should create praise in the hearts of His people. When you hear something about God, you can tell if you've really understood it. If you've understood, then, then you will say in your hearts some version of what you read here. If this is true about God, to Him be glory, praise, majesty, dominion, authority. That's why, that's why Jude zooms out there in verse 25. He says, God deserves all of this praise there at the end, before all ages. See, God didn't just become glorious last week. He didn't become glorious the week before Jude wrote this. He has always been glorious, always worthy of praise. Eternity past was filled with the praises of our God. Jude says that he's worthy of praise before all ages and now. This is great. This is where we come in. This is, 
This is Christians gathering on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings, week after week, year after year. According to Hebrews 12, when we come together to worship, we are joining in spiritually with the worship of innumerable angels in festal gathering taking place in heaven right now. And Jude says, forevermore. This is the business of the universe for the rest of time. God's praise and glory extend into eternity future. And they'll never be extinguished. Now here's what I've noticed. In, in nine years of pastoring, as people mature as Christians, they are more and more consumed, more and more captivated by the glory of God. Difficult situations in their life become fodder for God's glory. I, I've sat with people who have suffered unimaginable loss, Christians who have, who have muttered out through their tears, Lord, I don't understand, but you're good. Glorify yourself through these circumstances. Help me to honor you in this trial. Seasons of blessing become opportunities to praise God for his kindness. Lord, you are so kind to me. Help, these, help me receive these gifts in a way that brings you glory and brings honor to you. So friends, as we come to the end of our Lord's day, let this doxology focus you. We were all made for worship. It may not feel like it on any given day, but it's true. The only choice we have is between the worship of God, the true God, and idols. Whatever it is that, that gives you hope, whatever it is that gives you meaning, whatever it is that you put your trust in, whatever gets you out of bed in the morning, Whatever thrills your soul the most so that you want to declare glory, power, majesty, and authority to it. Whatever that thing or things are, those are your gods. Those are the things you worship. Each and every human heart is, is on a quest to find something that can bear the weight of our worship. And I don't need to, to know you in order to know this is true. Your day tomorrow will be ruled by the thing your heart worships. Whatever it is you do tomorrow, you will either do it with the conviction that God is worthy of all your praise, all of your honor, all of the glory, and so everything you do will be done with submission and gratitude, and in so doing, you will find them joyful, and when things go wrong, you'll be okay because God hasn't gone wrong. Or you'll do those things, whatever they are, in the hopes that they'll be enough to make you happy. That they'll be enough to sustain you and get you through another day. And you'll find that when things go wrong, life disappoints you, you'll feel like you've lost everything. See, Christians, this is such good news. God is able to keep us from stumbling. He can present us blameless, blameless before his glorious presence with great joy. So we have someone worthy of the worship of our hearts. We have someone who can bear the weight of our worship. We have a God who is worthy of all glory, all majesty, all dominion, and all authority. Let's pray together to that God now.